0: Hello there, it's Luke. Um, Did you know that Livewire is in its spring member drive right now? And did you know that it's a special year for us because we are having our 15th anniversary? And did you additionally know that the only way Livewire is able to keep this thing going is because of donations from fine folks like yourselves? those of you listening to my voice right now. That's right, LiveWire is a nonprofit, and we have only been able to make it this long because of folks like you buying tickets to come to our shows, and maybe even more crucially, becoming members of our League of Extraordinary Listeners, which is to say donating to the show every month. Our goal this spring is to sign up 100 new members. All you do is donate a small amount of money every month. Whatever feels right to you, whatever you think you can afford, How about $15 a month in honor of our 15th anniversary? If you can do that, or if you can renew at $15 a month, we are going to send you some really awesome thank you gifts. To thank you for supporting LiveWire, which, by the way, happens over at LiveWireRadio.org. So please, do not delay. Join us right now if you haven't already, or if you've been meaning to renew, this is a great time for that. We are trying to sign up 100 members to keep LiveWire going for another 15 years. Again, LiveWireRadio.org is where you can help us out. Well, hello and welcome to LiveWire. My name is Luke Burbank. We have a great episode of the show in store for you. Our guests include Michael Ian Black. Guy is a comedian, a writer, uh, an actor, an author, a podcaster, a Twitter legend, and now he can add LiveWire guest to his resume. Uh, We also have a writer, Melissa Phoebos stopping by. Uh, She has a fascinating memoir out about, among other things, being the daughter of a sea captain and how that sometimes doesn't turn out great. Plus, we have Ibtihaj Muhammad here. She is an Olympic-level fencer, even though she did not come from the background of people who tend to end up as Olympic-level fencers. So we'll chat with her. And then we have music from Portland's own Dirty Revival, one of the most energizing bands we've had on the show in a long, long time. You definitely want to stick around for that. Uh, Because our theme this week is getting to the point... We wanted to ask the audience at the Alberta Rose Theater what song they felt really nails the point of life. But when I started thinking about my answer to that question, I realized that I was having was having some problems. Let's pick things up on stage with me and our announcer, Elena Passarello, at the Alberta Rose. I I was really struggling with my answer to this question, Elena, because I feel like it's so cliche. Your Uh, answer? Yeah, like the the, the song that I think really nails the point of life or at least something important about life. I went back and forth. I wanted to come up with something cool or something indie or something unexpected. I went with uh, a John Lennon song. Uh, John Lennon was a singer from England in the (laughs) 60s and 70s.
1: You don't say. Yeah. learn something new every day.
0: Yeah. I kind of try to do a deep dive on Pandora sometimes and find some of these obscure artists (laughs) Um, he has this song, Beautiful Boy, that he wrote for his kid, right? I'm hearing people trying to stifle tears, even... even even this early in the show because it's such a beautiful, heartfelt song. <laughs> yeah. But it has this line, life is what happens when you're busy making other plans. I remember getting that CD and listening to it and hearing that line and just having my mind blown because I hadn't really thought about that yet in my life, the idea of being present. Uh, my life is spent constantly like relitigating something that happened or anticipating something. Mm-hmm. I spend very little time in the moment. In fact, interestingly enough, doing this show... It's really hard to be present and sometimes I will actually remind myself of the lyrics of that song as As an attempt to be more present the funny thing is I did some digging today John Lennon lifted that line from Reader's Digest in the (laughs) 1950s There was a guy who wrote like a kind of funny column in the Reader's Digest and he said that line and huh. I don't even think that John Lennon was necessarily coy about it. I think he just liked the line he put it in his song. He wasn't trying to mislead anyone. Right. But I love the idea of John Lennon being like a hardcore Reader's Digest fan. <laughs> what about you? What song do you think really kind of nails the point of life?
1: Well, there's, I have two answers because my first answer has already been banned because I talk about it all the time. I've mentioned it several times Here at the
0: Alberta Rose Theater. I'm sure it's never made it into the edited version of the show. No, never. (laughs) What is the first one? We got here.
1: Yakity sacks. (laughs) You know? And it's the soundtrack to life for me. Like nothing says life more. Like, I can imagine my coffin being lowered into the ground like while it's playing.
0: Do you have a non-yackety sex related song that you think nails the point of life? I
1: did. I had to dig deep. Um, and it's a little maybe pretentious. I really think the lyrics and the whole production of the Tom Waits, Keith Richards song, That Feel, is about life. It's like the last song on Bone Machine, that album <laughs> Bone Machine, right? I know, right? We yeah, actually have the producer yeah. of Bone Machine yeah, here. Mr. Bone Machine. <laughs> But you have to picture, it's like 1996 or something, and at the end of the album, Keith Richards and Tom Waits are, it just sounds like they're laying on the floor of the studio. They're barely opening their mouths to sing.
0: I feel like if you just poured (laughs) a bottle of whiskey into a reel to reel machine, it would make this song that you're describing. Yeah,
1: it's exactly, but then the lyrics are actually, there's only like 12 of them, but they're perfect. The song is called That Feel and it's a the, the feel is this kind of life force that keeps you true and keeps you going it's like soul it's style and he, they say again and again if there's one thing you can't lose it's that feel it's harder to get rid of than tattoos it's that feel and, yeah, I mean, that's, that's it. you got to hold on to your, your soul, your style, your swag, the thing that makes you you. You can't lose it.
0: Uh, awesome. We have somebody waiting just off stage who knows all about getting to the point. He is an actor. He's a writer. He's a host of the podcast Obscure, and he is also a Twitter legend, at least in his own mind. Please welcome Michael Ian Black to Livewire. <laughs>
2: Hi. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. Great to be back, actually. I was on Livewire years ago, and now it's great to make a reappearance here in Portland, Oregon. I have been really enjoying your podcast, Obscure. Can
0: you describe the premise for people that are unfamiliar with it? I
2: have a hard time believing anybody is unfamiliar (laughs) with it. But for those of you who have been living under a rock. It's a podcast in which I read the 1895 Thomas Hardy novel, Jude the Obscure, out loud and comment on it as I go. You're on episode (laughs) what at this point? I've recorded 50... And it'll probably be around 70-ish before it's done. So it's word for word. I've never read Jude the Obscure before. And uh, I picked it off the bookshelf in the Jill Schwartz Memorial Library in my home in the wilds of Connecticut. <laughs> and uh, it was my wife's paperback edition of it. She was a comp literature major in, in college. And I have said to her repeatedly over the years, can we please throw this book out? <laughs> because it's just sitting here. You're never going to read it again. I'm never going to read it. And she, and she says, no, you can't. It's a classic. And I said, well, you know, it's not the only copy. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so just uh, more out of spite than anything else I made a podcast about it
0: I feel like you do a great job early on in the episodes of managing people's expectations By saying this is a pretty bad idea for a podcast yep. But the barrier to entry for podcasting is so low That every day there are hundreds of thousands of terrible podcasts being launched Why can't you have one? Exactly right
2: It's the same reason I started writing children's books, actually. (laughs) Because when I had little kids, I would read these kids' books to them every night and think to myself, surely I can write a book at least as terrible as this one. (laughs) And as it turns out, I could.
0: Yeah. Uh, Elena Passarello, you are an English professor. Do you know the work of Thomas Hardy? Have you read Jude the Obscure? I have not read Jude. I've read Tess and The Mayor. Neither of which I have read.
1: Oh, yeah. I would think that most hardy people wouldn't start with Jude the Obscure. I'm not a
2: hardy person. I'm a person who is mad at my wife.
1: <laughs> is this helping the, the relationship to go through the book? She's
2: been on the podcast now a couple times, mm-hmm. and all we do is bicker on the podcast.
1: What sorts of things does one bicker about when, we're, when you're talking about reading Jude the Obscure? Like,
2: anything that I say about the <laughs> book! There's a rule in improvisational comedy, which I'm sure you're aware of. Yes, and. So I'll throw something out, and, I'll, and I don't know what it'll be. Uh, Sue Bridehead, who's uh, the, the love interest in the book, she seems really conflicted about her feelings for Jude. Right? And then my wife will say, well, I wouldn't say that. <laughs> And then where do you go? Where do you go from there?
1: So the real lesson of your podcast is never do a podcast with a comp
0: lit major, it sounds like.
2: Uh, yeah. <laughs> or specifically with my
0: wife. Uh, we're talking to Michael Ian Black here on LiveWire. Uh, his podcast is Obscure. Uh, how much of the decision to do this
2: podcast was based on the fact that you could record it at your house? 98%, <laughs> I would say. And then the other 2%, was uh, a podcasting company going, yeah, that sounds all right.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's how all great art is
2: made. Is it close to where I sleep, and will someone pay me for it?
0: Yeah, that was pretty much it. And here we are. We have to take a quick break. We have Michael Ian Black here, host of the podcast Obscure. And... uh, creator of many, many other things, which we're going to talk about when we come back. This is LiveWire from PRI. LiveWire is supported, in part, by Fully. Listen, you know in your heart of hearts that sitting around at work all day, that ain't great for you. But guess what? It's not just your heart of hearts. There's actually a lot of science backing that up, which is why LiveWire partners with Fully, the company that believes people weren't meant to be glued to a chair all day. Fully has curated the best collection, and I've been there, by the way. I've met them. I've seen the stuff, and I can testify. They've got the best collection of standing desks, active sitting chairs, and other workspace tools that encourage us to move. Uh, I've got the TikTok stool. In fact, I'm sitting on it right now. I don't know if you can hear me rocking back and forth on it, but uh, the folks at Fully sent me this thing, and it is just a dream. Uh, it's comfortable to sit on, but it keeps me engaged in the work that I'm doing, keeps the blood flowing, and uh, and it's really improved my life as I uh, work to host your favorite public radio show and podcast, known as Livewire, in case you needed a reminder. Anyway, if you would like to be better at what you're doing and stay more engaged, check out Fully. Get your body moving in your workspace by going to fully.com slash livewire. That's F-U-L-L-Y dot com slash livewire fully desks chairs and things to keep you moving welcome back to livewire from pri we're at the alberta rose theater in portland oregon my name is luke burbank we have elena passarello here and michael ian
2: black and of the three of us audience wise who do you think is their favorite it's not even close. Elena. Yep. No. <laughs> no. Would agree.
1: No. I think the real answer to that question is which one of us was in Wet Hot American Summer? That's, that's how you know. I believe that's Michael.
0: Right. Michael's pretty. the one. On, on the subject of which, uh, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, so the, many of the people listening on the radio and folks here in the theater, of course, are big fans of that movie. It was not uh, financially a big success when it came out. Wet Hot American Summer. I, I, I was reading it cost $5 million to make, which, no offense, that seemed high to me. <laughs> I was like, but it has gone on
2: to have a whole life of its it own. It has gone on to not recoup its uh, <laughs> expenses.
0: But it, it is beloved. People adore this film. Yep. So much so that you guys then came back and made a, a series for Netflix that was a prequel Mm-hmm. And it was it, of course all the people playing the characters were in the real time of planet Earth much older And yet you were playing younger versions of yourself. That's right. Who in your opinion? Did the least effective job of portraying a younger version of themselves based on physical degradation? I can't
3: <laughs> I,
2: I will not answer that question on the off chance that Michael Showalter is listening <laughs> That was 100% my guess.
0: <laughs> did you guys like get like did as you were you know hanging around getting ready to shoot were you guys analyzing each other's looks in your outfits to play the younger version of your oh, character? Oh yeah.
2: Well, uh, my love interest in the film was Bradley Cooper and when he showed up on set, he looked at me and made a joke about how <laughs> we meaning he and I hadn't aged so well. And I was like, (laughs) yeah. I was like, you're doing fine, bro. (laughs)
3: Yeah,
2: he was doing fine. Uh, um,
0: I mean, did you have a sense when you all were creating that film, because it was a lot of people from the state, which was the amazing uh, sketch group that you were part of, Did you guys have a sense when you were making Wet Hot American Summer, the original version, did you have a sense that it was going to be a cult
2: hit, I guess, is my question? There are a few things in my life that I have been prescient about. One of them was the success of Wet Hot American Summer in that when we were shooting it, Michael Showalter and David Wayne, who wrote it, um, were saying, we really think this is going to be a big hit. And I would nod and think to myself, no, it won't. (laughs) But I think it will find its audience over time. Was that based on other things you had seen? Yeah, it was based on everything that I had done to that point, (laughs) which is that you make something, nobody likes it. And then five years after the fact, people say, I loved that thing. I was the only one who saw it at the time. And if that were true, I wouldn't be sitting here in Portland doing Live Wire. I'd be retired in the wilds of Connecticut. Right. Uh, too good for your show. Sure. <laughs> on the subject of
0: which, you, you've described yourself, I think, as being uh, like on the periphery of being well-known. Yeah, that's right. Uh, do you like it there, or would you, no. rather,
2: would you like to be more famous? It's not that I want to be more famous. It's that uh, fame is the coin of the realm in my industry. And when you have uh, coins in the realm, (laughs) you can purchase things with them. (laughs) And I just have so much anxiety about just... The coins in my life, as you know, based on the fact that all I've talked about in this interview Mm -hmm. is my failed books and failed television shows and podcast, which is literally called Obscure. So (laughs) here's what I've leaned into in the past few years. I will do things for one of three reasons. Either uh, it pays well, or it seems like fun, or it's genuinely scary to me. And so this was number two on that list. We'll take it. Yeah. What's a genuinely scary thing that you've taken? Well, the book that I'm writing right now is genuinely scary for me. Okay, let's talk about that. It's about the topic of masculinity. That's right. I'm writing a mostly serious book about masculinity. And you hear the, the, the giggles because they think, well, what would you know about that, Michael Ian Black? <laughs> and that's the point, you they always say, write from a place
1: of love, and I think yeah, that's really happening like with this project.
2: I mean, the, the book is called A Better Man, and the subtitle is A Mostly Serious Letter to My Son. And it's written to, to my son, who's uh, graduating from high school in about two and a half weeks. He's about to go to college. And so it's some advice I hope for him that can be helpful and hopefully for for other people as well and then it tries to frame all of that advice about being a guy, being a man, masculinity and to place that in some historical context as well. It's hard. It's the hardest thing I've ever written. Do your kids think that you're funny? No, Are they impressed no. by your career? Oh god, no. No, but wouldn't it suck if your kids were, like, impressed by you? Like, that's not what you want. For me, like, having kids, part of the whole excitement of it was when they get got to the age that they're at now, they're 18 and 16, w- was the profound embarrassment I knew that I would be able to cause them at this age. If they thought I was cool in any capacity, right. all of that would be gone. So... You know, when my, when my daughter has friends over, I don't even know. I mean, anything I say is mortifying to her, and it's the best. How about them seeing you in, like, Wet Hot
0: American Summer, the Netflix series, where you are looking, you know, ridiculous? Uh, they don't care. Really? They don't care. But I mean, she's not embarrassed by that.
2: No, I don't know if they're embarrassed by that, or I don't know if they were embarrassed by, like, me... You know, porking Bradley Cooper. Maybe they thought that was cool. I don't know. (laughs) Michael Ian Black, everybody. His podcast is obscure.
0: All right, Michael, uh, we here at Livewire like to try to get to know our guests on a, on a deeply personal level, and I feel like we've, we've achieved that almost all the way so far in this conversation, but I think there's even another level that we can take it to. And so here on stage, I have a jar. It has the five essential questions of our time in it. We call this exercise, The Jar of Truth. Here's how this is going to work, Michael. So uh, Can I guess? Do I just reach in the jar and pull something out and read it? Have you done this before? Actually, there is a fun twist. You're going to draw a question out of the jar of truth. Elena Passarello, our announcer, is going to read the question. You are going to answer the question. (laughs) Michael has drawn a question out of the jar of truth. He has now handed it to Elena Passarello.
1: Okay, Mr. Black, is it ever okay to
2: compliment a complete stranger on their nice eyes? No. Whoa. Absolutely not. Not for a man. I feel like a woman can do it to another woman, and maybe a woman could even do it to a man. But a man cannot do it to anybody. <laughs> what about a dog? Could you compliment a
1: dog on their nice eyes? Like an Australian Shepherd or a Husky or something?
2: Is there, are we limiting it to those breeds? No. <laughs> no, you can't. You can't. Because I don't like when people talk to dogs uh, uh, when the owner is anywhere within earshot. Because it becomes performative. Yeah. Don't yeah. perform for me. If you want to talk to a dog, talk, take the dog somewhere very private.
1: <laughs> take the and, dog out for coffee. Absolutely.
2: Yes. And have a conversation. Respect the dog enough but, to oh, take it somewhere else. We go hiking a lot with our dogs because we live in the wilds of Connecticut. <laughs> and if we, if we happen to run into another dog owner, which often happens... The dog owner or, or somebody that I'm hiking with, and I won't say who, will say something like... Are
0: they a comparative literature major?
2: They may have been. <laughs> we'll talk to, like, our dog, and they'll be like, Jack, what are you doing, Jack? Mm. Come on, Jack, you know better than that. I'm like, you're not talking to Jack. You're yes. performing for the person. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Ian Black, everybody. His podcast
0: is obscure. LiveWire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines. Now, people may think Alaska Airlines only flies from cold to colder. But with 1,200 daily flights and 118 destinations, Alaska Airlines is a gateway from the West Coast to the world. Learn more at alaskaairlines.com. Hey, it's Luke again. Do not go anywhere because coming up, we have fencer Ibtihaj Muhammad, who did not take the traditional path to Olympic glory. I
4: spent a really long time not even allowing the people close to me to say the word Olympics because I thought that it was such a far-fetched thing that if you spoke it, it would almost be like, it would almost disappear.
0: But she did get there. Spoiler alert. Uh, We have Ibtihaj coming up on LiveWire in just a few moments. Stay with us. This is Live Wire Radio from PRI, I'm Luke Burbank with Elena Passarello, we're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Our theme this week is Getting to the Point, and our next guest has made a point in her writing career to discuss her life, her drug use, her work as a dominatrix with extreme honesty, but it's her latest collection of essays called Abandon Me that takes on what might be an even tougher subject matter, parents, (laughs) and how they can be not so great sometimes. And also romantic relationships. Have you heard of these things? They can also be rough. Please welcome Melissa Phoebos to (laughs) LiveWire. Melissa, welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, your, the previous book that you wrote, Whip Smart, got a lot of attention because it, it, it talked about your time when you were a dominatrix and Mm -hmm. when you were dealing with a drug addiction, Mm -hmm. this book, your, your new one, Abandoned Me, you wrote about your, your biological father was, you grew up without a lot of contact with him as a young Mm -hmm. person. He was down in, in Florida. I think he battled alcoholism. Your stepdad ended up divorcing your mom, but was still a pretty big part of your life. Mm -hmm. Um, What did your stepfather think of the book?
5: Okay. I have a Portland story to sort of illustrate this. So when this book was published, I started my book tour in the Pacific Northwest. And I don't, you know, so one way of describing Abandon Me is as an alternating series of meditations on the sorrows of growing up as the daughter of a sea captain alternated with graphic scenes of lesbian sex. And so at the be- my dad lives in the Pacific Northwest. And at the beginning of my book tour, he planned on coming to three readings in a row <laughs> of this book. And I had to curate dad-rated readings. He actually sat in the front row and wept. But okay. when I got to Portland, it was the first reading on my book tour that my dad had not been present at. And so I was sitting with a friend of mine, who's actually in the audience tonight, And I was like, I'm so excited to read something that is not dad-rated. And she was like, what are you going to read? And I was like, well, I'm deciding between an essay about how much I love hickeys and an essay about how much I cried as a child. And she was like, well, do you think Portland is more of a hickey city or more of a crying city? I mean, why do you have to choose? And I know that you'll believe me when I say that we looked each other dead in the eye and in perfect unison said crying. (laughs) Because for all the dominatrixes in Portland there are an infinity more tears happening at any given moment.
0: We're talking to Melissa Fibos. Um One of the things that fascinated me about uh, the previous book, Whip Smart, but it also comes up in, in your newer book, Abandon Me, is this idea that you drugs did something for you and it, it f- filled some hole or did something, in particular heroin, mm-hmm. which you, as you mentioned, and as you write about in the book, like you were you were injecting heroin mm-hmm. for years of your life, which is a thing that a lot of people don't come back from. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm curious, for people that have never been down that road, what is it that makes it so compelling for people that have that addiction? Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of people who deal with this in their lives mm-hmm. with their family members, mm-hmm. and they can't understand it because they haven't been through it.
5: Yeah. I mean, I think the largest misconception that I encounter about addiction and, you know, I've been clean for 15 years now and... um, Thank you. uh, Is that it is sort of an out of control, self-destructive impulse. And... It is neither sort of about being out of control um, or being self-destructive in my experience and in a lot of the experiences I've observed. And I think as much as it creates sort of disarray and wreckage in the addict's life, it's all about control, right? Every addict or alcoholic that I know is someone who feels like they have a surplus of emotions and feels like they need to manage them, Mm -hmm. right? Or needs to manage the affect of the world upon them. And drugs, for whatever Catastrophe they create in our lives—they're very predictable in terms of the psychological or emotional effect of them, right? So you know exactly how you're going to feel when it wears off. Then you know you can see how it perpetuates. But um, it's really about control and managing what's going on inside. And I also think that for me, uh, it was never self-destructive, right? It was just sort of the best survival tool that I could recognize at a certain point in my life, you know, like at at this vantage point with so many years of sobriety I really have sort of softened
0: Mm -hmm. Um, This uh, latest book talks a lot about uh, a relationship that you were in, and I have to say, I don't know if this is supposed to be my takeaway, but your ex does not come off as a great person to be in a relationship with
5: I mean, she doesn't improve in hindsight
0: for me either (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, it's. I assume you changed the name, but like, there's got to be a lot of people in the world who know you and know that person and th- like know who the players are in this melodrama.
5: I mean, there's a lot of ways I could respond to this question. I'm trying to choose, choose the, the right most interesting. One. I'm going to choose the least <laughs> litigious potential. <laughs> Uh, I'm going to say that, no, I'm going to, I'm going to go earnest on this, um, because if you write memoir and you write essays and you write nonfiction and you examine your own experience, you inevitably have to implicate other people, some of whom hurt you. Um, and I take that very seriously. I have never written for any kind of, um, vengeance and I don't think that you should ever implicate another person in your work if you can't do it with love, even if it's a person who has hurt you. And so I take that very seriously. Um, and I have been as generous as I was capable of at the time in everything I've written about other people.
1: I feel like you have really carved out a place for yourself as a writer of honesty, not just being confessional, but putting something on the page that really conveys is honest. I teach your essays all the time, 100 level students, grad students, they say, I want to learn how to be that honest. What's the difference between being confessional and being honest as a writer, as a maker right, of art? Right, think?
5: I think there's a big difference. And I think sort of confession is um, the object of it is an unburdening, right? So you're sort of setting something down or letting it go or giving it to God or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but being honest about it is much more engaged action, right? Yeah. Like for me, being honest is just using all of the tools at my disposal to name something as exactly as I can, and you're a writer, you know that we're always going to fail at this. I lie ultimately. like a man.
1: No, I don't. I don't do anything <laughs> honest.
5: But I think, honestly, like I'm a really secretive person by nature, and I think people who who write memoir or who really sort of get to the point get a reputation of being sort of like. Liking to share parts of themselves or whatever, but I actually think it's the opposite. Like, by nature, I'm very, very secretive. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanna only tell people what will make them happy with me. Um, and I have held secrets for a really, really long time. But the thing about secrets is that um, they get heavier over time and they make the world a smaller place, right? Mm-hmm. And so for me, I have to articulate those things that are imprisoning me after a certain amount of time. Um, And I do it totally alone, right? Like the thing about writing, you know, you publish a memoir and everybody reads it and it feels like they're having a conversation with you, but I wrote it totally alone, right? right? It was a conversation that I had with myself for as long as I needed to before anybody else was invited into the conversation.
0: Mm -hmm. Um, You teach English or you teach writing Mm -hmm. and your students obviously have available to them your books where you describe really personal stuff. Um, has that come up in class? How do you deal with that? Like they know, they could potentially know so much about you on day one.
5: They could. And it's shocking how few of them <laughs> do, but I mean, I have encountered that. And, and you know, I, what I find is that people are so unused to talking about these things in a context that's that unfamiliar. Like I remember when my first book came out, uh, And nobody knew, like, none of, I was an adjunct at the time, and none of my colleagues, and none of my students, and, like, the dean, nobody knew what I wrote about. And then I was, like, on NPR. I was on fresh air when my first book came out. And I went to work the next day, and everyone was, like... (laughs) And I was, like hi um and i was super nervous but i had already sort of figured out by that point maybe from being a dominatrix that acting as if really works and people will take your cue and so when they were like so congratulations i was like thank you
0: melissa Phoebos, everybody her book is abandon me This is Live Wire Radio from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Elena Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland. Our theme this week is Getting to the Point, and we asked the crowd here at the theater, what's a song that you feel really nails the point of life? And they passed those answers forward. Elena, you've been collecting those up. What are you seeing?
1: Uh, You want to hear the repeats? There were three repeats. Okay. The first one, uh, Louis Armstrong, What a Wonderful World.
0: I'm glad to hear that level of positivity still exists. Right? Not I mean, bad. honestly.
1: Uh, number two, Don't Worry, Be Happy.
0: Oh. I am, again, very touched that to know that this audience feels that Don't Worry, Be Happy is a good way to go through life, because I agree very much.
1: Well, wait till you hear the third repeat
0: song. Oh, boy. Mbop. Uh, I can see it. I can see mm-hmm.
1: it. And this one uh, uh, audience member told us why. There is a lot of nonsense in life. Just badoop, bop, bop, badoop, bop, bop. People only care when yeah. we're no there. And you don't know what will come at you, Daisy or a Rose. Yes. You don't know.
0: Yeah. In an umbop, they're gone. It's such a club banger. I am 100% in agreement with the audience. All right. One more.
1: Uh, here's one from Aaron. Aaron thinks a song that really nails the point of life is Gin and Juice by Snoop Dogg. Yes. <laughs> Because Aaron says, I do, in fact, have my mind on my money and my money on my mind most days.
0: Yes. (laughs) And your friends come over and they don't want to pay for stuff. This kind of bleep happens every day. (laughs) It's another (laughs) truism that Snoop Dogg laid down in that song. Our theme this week is getting to the point, which is actually the opposite of what our next guest has spent her athletic career doing. She's been trying to avoid the point of the other person's sword as an Olympic fencer. At the 2016 Rio Summer Games, she became the first woman to compete for the United States while wearing a hijab, as well as the first to medal in the Team Sabre event. They even designed a Barbie doll after her. Her book is called Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream. Please welcome Ibtahaj Muhammad to (laughs) Livewire. Hello. How are you? Good. Welcome to LiveWire.
4: Thank you for having me. Hey, Portland.
0: Um, You grew up in New Jersey, and you grew up in a family that was African American, but also observant Muslims, right? So your parents were not born into the Muslim faith, if I understand it right?
4: No. uh, My parents converted in the 70s. I think my parents did a great job in making faith a really solid part of our lifestyles, and I grew up in a town uh, there about 30 minutes outside of New York City, Maplewood, New Jersey, that I was very inclusive, an, an inclusive space, and as a Muslim kid growing up in a you know, predominantly white neighborhood. I just, I didn't feel different. I literally thought everyone had similar practices to us.
0: I have to say that that was a part of the book where I was like, okay, I know how this ends. They moved to Maplewood, New Jersey. They're a Muslim family. This is going to be like fish out of water. And they were like, and then I made a best friend named Amy. (laughs) Like, it seems like you fit in pretty fast.
4: Um, yeah, I mean, I have I feel like I've learned to adapt to certain spaces, or really more so of just having this, this confidence as a kid where I didn't allow people to make me feel out of place. Um, I just was always that kid who wanted to excel, whether that be in sport or in the classroom or even just as, like, one of five kids who wanted to, like, impress my parents all yeah. the time. Um, not everyone appreciates that energy. So... I learned not to care what other people think. You know, people aren't gonna always accept you, your tenacity, your work ethic, who you are, what you look like, and it's really you know, more so about how you feel about yourself and who cares what other people think.
0: Uh, one of the things that drew you, if I understand right, towards fencing and your parents were interested in it as a sport for you was because you could wear hijab and do the sport. Was that, I mean, what what, what did you think of fencing the first time you actually saw it going on? Did you, were you immediately drawn to it?
4: Well, I, I think that you can wear hijab in any sport. Uh, we were literally driving past the local high school in our town. I was 12 Uh, My mom and I were at a stoplight, and to the right of our car, we could see into the school cafeteria, into the local high school, and we saw athletes inside that had on long white jackets, white pants. We thought they were wearing helmets, and my mom looks over at me, and she's like, I don't know what that is, but when you get to high school, you're going to try it out. Really? Yeah. That's how I started fencing.
0: Thank God it was just fencing.
4: Yeah.
0: It <laughs> could have been a biohazard site. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of bad things that could have been. No, there
4: were children. It looked oh. organized. We knew it was a sport. We just couldn't put a name to it okay. at the moment. Okay. Um, but as a kid for me, you know, I knew I always knew I wanted to go to a top school. I wanted to go to one of the, you know, world's best universities. But I come from a large family. My dad's, both my parents are now retired, but my dad um, is a narcotics detective. My mom was a teacher. And when you come from a large family, you have to be, or a working class family, you have to be creative with how you plan to pay for college. And for me, I saw fencing as a means to an end. You know, if I, when I looked at the top 10 schools, this is at 12, by the way, Um, (laughs) but I remember Googling, you know the top 10 schools and they all had fencing teams. So for me, it was this light bulb moment as a kid. I was like, oh, I can use this sport to set myself apart from everyone else and I can use it to, you know, get into a top school. So that was always my plan. That's why I was so into fencing when I started. Not that I loved it, um, <laughs> I just, um, wow, this
0: is really not turning into the ad for fencing I was expecting.
4: <laughs> I am the most competitive person you'll ever meet. So if there's something in front of me that I, I like, you know, I'm very myopic in my focus. If there's something that I want to excel at, I'm a workhorse and that's what fencing's always been for me. I, I, I think I enjoy the rush of putting in the hard work and the time and effort in order to be successful in whatever it is.
0: By the way, this is Live Wire Radio. We're talking to Olympic fencer Ibtahaj Mohammed. Can you explain fencing for people? There's a three kind of disciplines in it for people that don't really know. They just think it's sword fighting. It's obviously a lot more than that. What is going on with fencing?
4: Yeah, so there's three weapons in fencing. There's foil, epée, and saber. Saber being the best. That's the one that I fence. <laughs> um, so we're more like the sprinters of fencing. Saber fencers and epée. They're more like the marathoners. And I would say foil is like the middle distance. I started in epée. I fenced epée for three years. Uh, fell asleep and was like, this is so boring. Uh, it's really slow. Um, I think I enjoyed how fast Sabre was. So when my high school team, I mean, I come from this this amazing high school program, the best in the country, um, and our our program needed a Sabre fencer. And my coach literally forced me to, to switch weapons. And thank God he did, or else we wouldn't be sitting here chatting so um, I think I like the thrill that happens with Sabre that you may not get in the other weapons.
0: All right, we got to take a quick break. This is LiveWire from PRI. We're talking to Ibtihaj Muhammad. Back with more in just a moment. Hey, it's Luke. Special thanks this episode to Carol Hinton of Portland, Oregon, and Michelle Knofziger of Portland, Oregon as well. Carol and Michelle are a big part of the LiveWire community. And they have been generously supporting the show with a donation each month. We are very thankful for that support because without Carol and Michelle and fine folks like them, uh, this show would not exist. We are celebrating 15 years of doing Livewire, and it's been possible thanks in part to people like Carol and Michelle. So a big thanks to them for keeping Livewire going. Welcome back to Livewire from PRI. I'm Luke Burbank. That's Orlando Passarello. We're at the Alberta Rose Theater in Portland, Oregon. We're talking to Ibtahaj Muhammad. She is a fencer. Her book is Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream. Um, you, you went to Duke University. Uh, you were a fencer there, but you write in the book that you really didn't feel that connected to a lot of the other people on the team other than the other person of color, who was on the team. What was it like for you being a part of fencing, being a Muslim American, being a woman of color, wearing hijab? I mean, were you commonly the only person that kind of looked like you trying to do this thing?
4: I would say so, especially I remember as a kid, I was at a competition or like at a local tournament and a parent came up to me and she said, did you know there are black people who fence in New York City? And I remember thinking to myself, I was like, you know, I don't know, maybe 16. And I remember thinking to myself, dang, that's mad offensive but huh. i was curious i like went on google and i was like black people new york city fencing i like had to find it cuz it was like unicorns right cuz i didn't see it as a kid i didn't see even
0: though you were in new jersey and you were really competitive with this you weren't aware of this other scene that was going on
4: oh no so who knew that there was this, this life outside of high school fencing? I had no idea. And I remember my mom took me into the city to the Peter Westbrook Foundation, uh, a nonprofit that was founded by six-time Olympian, 13-time national champion Peter Westbrook. And you know, fencing changed his life in a way that he wanted to do the same thing you know, for other kids, not just kids of color, but kids from underserved communities, underrepresented communities. And he started this program. There's 250 kids every single Saturday in New York City learning a fence. Wow. And it was the first time I had ever even heard about world championships or, you know, fencing in the Olympics and winning medals and traveling the world for a sport. But um, I think that's when my journey in sport really kind of took a shape of its own.
0: Uh, You did make the Olympics. You won uh, a bronze medal. What is that like to stand on that podium and hear the music? Did you cry?
4: Um, No, because I'm really into my eyeliner. So I'm like, no way I'm messing (laughs) this up. But, you know, uh, I remember when, uh, so I won bronze with my team. And I remember just thinking to myself, man, I can't believe this is happening. Because you're running down all those different moments where it almost seemed like, it wasn't going to happen, right? Like, you weren't even going to qualify for the team. I spent a really long time not even allowing the people close to me to say the word Olympics, because I thought that it was such a far-fetched thing that if you spoke it, it would almost be like, it would almost disappear, you know? So, and this is not just for me as, like, a professional athlete, but for each of us. When you really think about your life and what you do and the voices, right, that... You maybe hear from friends, family, from society telling you, you're too old, you're not strong enough, you're not smart enough, you can't do it. And we have to make conscious effort to, like, block all that stuff out and learn to believe in yourself. I just knew I was working towards something, and whether or not God had written for me, I was, like, to be determined, but I'm going to, like, bust my ass trying to get there.
0: Well, you did it. Congratulations. Congratulations. Imtahaj Muhammad, The Book is Proud, My Fight for an Unlikely American Dream. Our show this week is all about getting to the point. And if the point of forming a funk soul band is to get people shaking their money makers... Well, our musical guests this hour, they get right to it. Please welcome Portland's own Dirty Revival to Livewire.
3: Yeah, yeah, hey. she did take a step her path again on the track hey, hey. dreams of heading out California way Escape the arm of the law after nothing for a man hey, hey, oh. she stole little things to get by Yeah, yeah. when well, she was eating off the land genre her she can't play. she left that little girl crying in the pines Skin, no, no, unless that big man like an any trying to get again. So she do what a woman gotta do. She got herself a pretty dress and some dance in the hall every night, late night. Yeah. She found a date by. Is
0: Dirty Revival. Their self-titled debut album is available now. Go to DirtyRevival.com to see when they're coming to a town near you. So
3: Thank good. you so much.
0: All right, that is going to do it for our show this week. Big thanks to our guests, Michael Ian Black, Melissa Phoebos, Ibtihaj Muhammad, and Dirty Revival. Livewire is brought to you in part by Alaska Airlines, Fully, and the Jupiter Hotel. Laura Haddon is our executive producer. Lauren Masterson is our development and marketing director. Tim Harkins is our production director. And Christian Sager is our marketing associate. Our producer and editor is Melanie Sevchenko. Caitlin Kunkel is our writer. Our house band is A. Walker Spring, Sam Tucker, and Ethan Fox Tucker. Molly Pettit is our technical director. Our house sound is by D. Neil Blake. And our on-air mix is by Corey Schreppel. Thanks so much, as always, to Carlson Audio. Additional funding provided by the James F. and Marion L. Miller Foundation. Livewire was created by Robin Tenenbaum and Kate Sokoloff. Our show is made possible by the generous support of our members. This week, we would like to thank member Patricia Selby of Portland, Oregon. For more information about our show or how you can get our podcast or get our newsletter, head on over to LiveWireRadio.org. I'm Luke Burbank for Elena Passarello and the whole LiveWire crew. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.
3: PRI, Public Radio International.